All right. Good morning, everybody. It's Saturday, January 20th. Uh, thank you for tuning in to Twin Radio, and I'm so excited to welcome back to the podcast uh, 2024 presidential candidate for the Democratic nomination for president, Marianne Williamson. Marianne, how you doing this morning? Thank you for joining us. I'm doing well, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I'm assuming right now, Marianne, you're at a hotel somewhere in cold New Hampshire. Manchester, New Hampshire. You've got it. Manchester. Um, so it's it's quite it's quite a journey you've been on. Um, I first met you in during the 2020 primary when you were um, running in that very crowded field with uh, I think at one point it got up to like 800 candidates and people of all stripes and backgrounds in the Democratic Party um, getting in and you ran a really you know insurgent and, and spirited campaign and talked about a lot of things that the other candidates just quite frankly weren't talking about. Um, so. Based on that experience and how that primary went, what things and you know lessons and, and happenings from that primary campaign stuck with you and are you know giving you insight into how you're running this campaign? Well, what I was talking about then uh, is very much what I'm talking about now and talking about a few other things as well. The same spirit, as you said, insurgency, the same spirit of... Uh, come on, guys, you must be kidding. You're talking about shallow nonsense. Why don't we get real with the American people? That strain of bluntness and directness and I think um, call to fundamental repair and reform is the same as it was. But the system is different. The two things, the system is different and the listening of people is different. In terms of the system, first of all, last time, as you said, there were so many candidates. So it was fun because most of them were just really lovely and it was fun, you know, going around different things, all the people were there. This time it's very different. The system has decided that it has um, the right to simply anoint Joe Biden. And in, towards me, I mean, last time they were satisfied to just make me appear kooky and silly and crystal lady, you know, deride, make fun of. This time they're vicious towards anyone who has in their mind the audacity to challenge their right to simply declare that it's Joe Biden and no one else will be running. We will not have um, we will not have debates. And they've gone so far as to uh, kick me uh, where they are in sort of cahoots, as it turns out, with the secretaries of state who say, well, if the Democratic Party doesn't want you on the ballot, then we'll not put you on the ballot, even though you've done everything legal uh, to do so. Um, you feel it. You, In my case, the invisibilization, the erasure, you read articles, look at things on TV, people wouldn't even know that I'm running. So that's um, deliberate. It's a manipulation of the public. It's undemocratic. And um, to be in the midst of that all day, you, you feel like you're, you know, taking on a personal level the assault of a system that in the name of saving democracy is seeking to suppress democracy. Damn. On the other hand, as I said before, the listening of people, you know, I was impressed by that last time, Eric, particularly in the early primary states where people understand the importance of their decision. The system is supposed to work where it's people deciding who the nominee is, not the, not the uh, political party. So in that uh, area of sector, where it's about you talking to the to the voters, it's profound, it's touching, um, it's meaningful, and it's exhilarating. 
So it's like two different universes, the machine versus the people. And that's, and that's actually exactly what's going on in this country, the machine versus the people. It, it really is. And the people are indicative of the actual reality of our country, because I'm sure as you've seen this in your journeys from 2020 and then now in this primary, you've gone all across our country. Uh, we're not as divided as they, the machine projects and its mouthpieces and the media projects and puts out there that neighbors hate neighbors and we're all divided and the fault lines are not beyond repair. Um, at least in my experience, you know, I've lived here in New Hampshire uh, since I was in fourth grade, we moved up here from Massachusetts. And as you know, as you can attest to, we're, we're very engaged here. And typically majority of people, and I can speak to New Hampshire, are very respectful of other people's political views. And we have, you know, we can have spirited and heated discourse and debate. Um, but that is just, I mean, debate, the, the word debate. I know you did a great event with Congressman Phillips over at uh, New England College. Um, and, it, you know, that that's that's how good it could be. We could have candidates up there in a nice forum, not yelling at each other, uh, not not a race to the bottom and actually talking about substance and the issues that really affect uh, everyday people. And, and, you know, whether it's the economy or jobs or inflation. So while you're out there and specific, specifically while you've been here in New Hampshire, what are like a couple of the biggest issues you hear about and how would you go about helping Americans with those issues? Just under the surface, there's a lot of misery. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of anxiety. There's even a lot of suffering. We have the highest poverty rate of any advanced nation. Now, I know that your poverty rate is relatively low in New Hampshire, and I celebrate that. But that doesn't mean people aren't living with chronic economic stress. 70% of Americans report that they are. 39% of Americans say that they regularly skip meals in order to pay for their rent. The majority of Americans live paycheck. The majority uh, can't absorb a $500 unexpected expenditure. So in New Hampshire, what I see is what I see everywhere. You know, you have 20% of Americans for whom the economy is working. And that's certainly to be celebrated, but it's way too low a number. You have that 20%, it's like we're living on an island and it's surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. So what I see in New Hampshire is what I see everywhere, a goodness, a decency, but a genuine concern. You know, this idea that, you know, left versus right, and we're so divided. There's one place where we're deeply divided, you know, so, so people like to say, well, we're not as divided as we think we are. All that, however, that entire left-right division is artificially created in order to mask where we are indeed divided. And it is a radical division, and it is an unsustainable and dangerous division for democracy. And that is the division between those who already have a lot of money and have access to even more and hold Washington hostage with their interests versus the vast majority of Americans who are just struggling to get by. And that's what this campaign is about. This campaign speaks to the knowing within people that we've had a 50 year war on the middle class and the poor in the United States. In the 1970s, we had a, uh, a thriving middle class. And I'm old enough to remember, people could own a house, uh, own a car, yearly vacation, parent could stay home with the kids. One salary could support a family of four. People could send their kids to college. There has now been a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% to the 1%, that middle class has collapsed now. So when you say, what do I see? I see two things. I see people who are living at the effect of genuine concern 
for themselves and for their children. But I also see a lot of people who are economically fine, but can see that something very dangerous is happening here that we split into two Americas. And I think Americans want to feel called to something noble and great. And that is what this campaign does. It calls people to something noble and great as in the beginning of a new chapter of American history, cutting the cord with an entire of neoliberal economics and trickle down nonsense that has kept so many people um, in a state of constant economic stress. Yeah. And it, it's sad, you know, more and more I'm seeing in headlines families where there's like a, a suicide, murder, suicide in the family because they're underwater on their mortgage. They have financial strife. They're over leveraging credit cards to keep up appearances that they're fine and they're healthy. And, and th these are people otherwise years ago, you wouldn't see things like this happen nope, with the nope. frequency that it's happening. And it's interesting that you point that out because the system calls that a mental health crisis. This mental health crisis is the symptom. And the traditional politicians don't really want to talk about the cause because if you look at the cause, how often the public policies enacted by those traditional politicians are the cause. And it's economic people, people just, people's lives are falling apart. Yeah. Well, you know, years ago when I was a kid, most of my friends, you know, we were middle class. Their parents had a mortgage and had their house and they could make their mortgage every month and have money for the vacation and other things and live, you know, live a comfortable life and a nice life. Um, I'm 37 years old and a lot of people in my millennial generation, myself included, I'll be totally honest here. I don't feel like I'm ever going to be able to own a house. That's exactly and what I'm talking about. One, you know, big issue that uh, Bobby Kennedy's talking about is BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, these mega corporations who were buying up, you know, someone goes in with a cash offer on something and or or, an, or they go in with an offer with a bank and then someone will come in, some mysterious LLC will come in with a cash officer, officer offer and swoop it right up. So these are these are big issues that are happening. So, I mean, what could your everyday person do about this or what can we do collectively as, as citizens? Well, Bobby Kennedy is not the only one talking about it. And I hope that people will go to Marianne2024.com and look at my housing policy. We it, This is not just a housing crisis. This is a housing emergency. You know, like you said, it used to be the American dream that you'd have a house with a picket fence. For a lot of people, the American dream is to get out of debt before they die. Hmm. So you've got those companies, the Wall Street companies that are buying up whole neighborhoods. And that is not the entirety either. In, in New Hampshire alone, you would need 31,000 units in order just to get out of the hole. So we need a housing Marshall Plan in this country. We need five to 10 million units of, of social housing. And I have an economic bill of rights that makes uh, a guarantee, that posits a guarantee of affordable housing. We have, not only do we have 600,000 people who are unhoused in this country, but many of them are working full time. We had an eviction rate last year alone of over 3 million people. That was as high as it was during the housing crisis. And when you have, as I said before, 40% of Americans skipping meals to pay what rent, you know, the rent that they have to stay where they are. And of course, many young people who are now living with their parents who when yeah. I was growing up would now be getting out of the house, starting their lives. Like you said, you're 37. That's about when you should at least be starting to think of the possibility uh, that you would be would be bond.
campaign is about, to address the structural economic issues. That's why my, my plan does call for universal health care, tuition-free college and tech school, complete eradication of the college loan debt, subsidized childcare, guaranteed living wage. These are the things that will enable people to absorb this, this really inherent cruelty of the situation as it is today so that you can have some retirement savings. So you can put together, uh, put, uh, uh, you know, together, uh, some money for a down payment on a house. This is not only destructive to the lives of those of you who then can't get started the way many people your age did in other generations, but it's dangerous to our democracy. You know, um, you can't have a thriving democracy where you do not have a thriving middle class because too many of the resources of the country, both in terms of wealth and opportunity, are in the hands of a few people. That's not a democracy, that's an oligarchy, and that's where we already are. And the people have to step in now to continue to elect the, 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 the people who have represented the economic masters of the universe who created all this and expect them is getting increasingly absurd. And that's why my presidency would represent a real economic turnaround. Yeah, absolutely. And along with tough economic times, uh, overall trust in institutions, in the media, um, banking, all, all, all A to Z across the spectrum um, is at an all-time low. And of course, week by week, and especially the last couple of weeks, uh, Jeffrey Epstein and all that has been in the news. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the Epstein uh, affair and, and what do you think that was all about and who do you think he was working for? Well, I, I, even with the release of the names, there's not much going on there now that we didn't already know by now. And certainly it is a, an example, a kind of egregious, perverse embodiment of uh, the general decline in honor and ethics legality, And of course, for me as a woman, central to that story, of course, is the assault on women and girls and the almost male conspiracy to condone it, to overlook it, to protect it in one another. It's all there. It's all right. there. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? And this is, of course, not to defend her at all, but the one person who ends up in prison for 20 years it's is, is, That's right. is That's Ghislaine exactly. Maxwell. Mm -hmm. and That's exactly right. a lot of these other people they're just skating by uh you know clinton's name is thrown out there dershowitz and uh, of course bill richardson died before he really had to kind of answer any questions so i just think that that speaks to an overall painting of our system is just completely rotten and i think you're right i don't think that's hyperbole what you just said i think you just said tanking of our system it's completely rotten yeah it, it, yeah you're right it's wrong. And, and and I I think that you know it's almost like feeling like Paul Revere. Because I think a lot of people would like to say, oh, the system tanking, the system rotten, that's hyperbole. You shouldn't use language like that. But when you talk about how far less dramatic, but similarly egregious examples occur every day, they're not Epstein level drama. They're not the rich and the powerful on private planes that go to private islands in order to have sex with underage girls. It doesn't have that level of, of almost like nationalism, but it has that level of malfeasance and criminality and cruelty. Yeah. 
and uh, I mean, blackmail is basically how our government is run. I mean, you look at some of the decisions these politicians make, and you're just like, they have to. Someone has the goods on them, and they have to be blackmailed. So there has to really be a dismantling or an enema or something of just the whole structure of how it's done. Because if we keep moving forward with that system, it doesn't matter who we elect or put in. It's just going to perpetuate and, and keep going that way. Would you agree? Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you elect a president who calls the system on what it is. That's that's why, why I'm running. You know, <clears throat> they would have you think that the only person who's qualified is someone who is a member of their club, qualified to maintain and uh, perpetuate the system as it is. What people such as ourselves are realizing is, no, that should almost be disqualifying at this point. What we need is someone qualified to see that system for what it is, to name that system, and to articulate a plan for changing that system. And that's, and, and by the way, um, I don't think anything short of that will defeat Donald Trump in 2024. And I don't think anything short of that will begin a season of repair in this country, which is what we need. Yeah. I mean, I'm having that conversation with people all over that uh, Trump has a, a damn good shot of winning again. Absolutely. And, and being president again. I mean, pe people, people think he's got all these charges and he's caught up in court and he's still very popular in America it's here in New Hampshire. Popular. I mean, I, 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 I think, I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, I, th I think he's going to, it's going to be a blowout on Tuesday. I mean, I think Nikki Haley largely has the uh, support is kind of inflated by the media. I, I think Trump's going to win by probably five or more points on Tuesday. And that'll be it. I think he'll be sailing to the nomination. Well, I think that the Democrats are in delusion to think that, uh, you know, this is not going to be like 2020. This is going to be like 2016. And I challenge the idea that because President Biden beat him once, that he is necessarily the best candidate to beat him again. And I think that the suppression of a robust democratic debate is terrible for our party because the fact that the Democrat, that the DNC has not wanted uh, me on CNN or MSNBC, the fact that I've been blacklisted, the fact that we haven't had debates, what this is doing is giving all the airtime and all the oxygen to the Republicans. And I think that we need to meet uh, the president on the level of his energy. His energy is we're going to pull you down. And my energy is we're going to pull you up. My agenda says you can have a better life. We can start over. You know, the Republicans offer you crumbs, but the corporatist Democrats offer you cookies. You can't live on cookies either. Everything that my uh, my Economic Bill of Rights stands for, plus my Department of Peace, plus the Department of Children and Youth, plus ending the drug war, plus a climate emergency, those things are all considered moderate positions in every other advanced democracy. So we're headed for the iceberg here in all the ways that you've articulated, and we've got to turn this ship around. Yeah. And in my four years in office, I would not be able to completely turn it around, but I feel I could get us around the curve and then hand it over to a younger generation because it will be their turn then. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, foreign policy is linked to domestic policy. Um, you know, I was on board with Tulsi Gabbard last time around, and that was a big part of her campaign was the two were linked. And we, in my opinion, are just pissing away billions and billions of dollars um, in overseas misadventures, which essentially, in my view, was money laundering. The money, the money goes out, Congress appropriates it, it goes out for conflict or armament, and that just goes right back into the pockets there. And 
Northern uh, Virginia to the arms industry. Um, so your president, what, what uh, you get in there on day one, and obviously Russia and Ukraine is still an issue. What's your posture there and what would you seek to do with that conflict? Well, you know, two things can be true at the same time. And when it comes to foreign policy, they often are. Everything that you just said is true. Uh, Washington is riddled with warmongers. There is what's called the blob, this forever war machine. People who make trillions of dollars uh, off war. To them, it's a profit center. Uh, the fact that they're actually as obscene as it was that we already had an $858 billion defense uh, budget, they're talking about $1.5 trillion. All true. All of that is true. And we need a president who is not uh, so easily snookered and manipulated by those forces. And, and Vladimir Putin is a bad guy. And even though we uh, did not have clean hands with NATO, with the Aegis missiles in Poland and so forth, we have to think long and hard about whether it is in the interest of anyone in this world, not just America, but anyone in the world, for leaders such as Vladimir Putin to think that they can just grab whole pieces of countries anytime they want. And yeah, you know, we'll put up a fight for a while, but then, you know, we'll get tired. So, you know, I was hoping, as so many people were, that this counteroffensive on the part of uh, Ukraine uh, would be successful. And it was only so successful in so far as putting us in what is basically a war of attrition now and a stalemate. Um, I do not agree with the president's, you know, his sending cluster bombs over there was terrible. There were reports of white phosphorus. Um, so I think the first thing I would do uh, as president, because remember, they get military briefings, security briefings that you and I don't get. I want to dig down one layer more deeply than I can as a civilian. Because Vladimir Putin says he's counting us on us to just tire. And then the question is, well, is he just going to go away if we just negotiate with him now? And my concern is there is no guarantee that if we wait, Ukraine would get a better deal. So, you know, others say, well, but if he, if you just do that negotiation, he's going to go back and do what he did with Crimea. This is what he does. He takes a slice, he goes home, he pauses for a while and comes back. I would want to be in deep consultation with European partners. Um, it's not a, uh, not nothing that countries like Finland are rushing to join NATO and for decades they wanted nothing to do with it. So it would be time for some very deep conversation about what the military prospects are, as well as what the beliefs are of other European nations. And then you either uh, enter into talks with Putin. Although on the other hand, as, as people then point out, everything you go to with Ukraine, there's this, and then the other hand, other people say, what are you going to talk to Putin for? He's a liar. He's not going to tell you the truth. Um, until very recently, until these winter months set in, my thought was, let's see how the counteroffensive goes. That's why I'm on Ukraine. I see that uh, we're caught between two bad decisions there. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not a, a black or white, uh, just snap your fingers, fix all, uh, you know, a solution to that. But um, sure. when so many billions of dollars are just continuously going to that, and then all the things we talked about, people barely meeting ends meet and paying their mortgages and having to skip meals to pay bills, it's just a, it's a hard sell to most Americans to justify all well, that money, all that money going out. That's true. 
And you know as well as I know that the mean-spirited, oligarchic, trickled-down, neoliberal, corporatist trend in this country that leads to the diminishment of resources for the public good is a completely separate conversation of expenditure than that which is happening with foreign wars. It's not like if you stop spending money to Ukraine, then that would be directly going towards education and child poverty. Right. Right. No, I, I hear you on that. It's 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 structural changes that have to happen. Um, but there, there definitely is war fatigue in this country. And, um, you know, myself being a, a growing up with the Iraq war generation, I was uh, 2003. I was a sophomore in high school when the invasion happened. It's 20 years. There's always a war going on. And, and seeing my peers go over and come back. And now, you know, some of them have drug problems. Some of them uh, tore their families apart. It's just like a cycle that just there never seems to be an end to it. Well, as I said, it, it, it is a, uh, a forever war machine. And, and there is a military industrial complex. And you need a president who doesn't just know that, but is able to withstand the obviously extraordinary manipulation uh, that is perpetrated on on the presidents themselves. I mean, how how Obama uh, could have presided over that last. I mean, the last twenty years in in uh, Afghanistan, and it's not even just that we were there. It's bad enough that we were there that long. I mean, it was absurd. It was what we were doing there and what we weren't doing there. I mean, we clearly were not bolstering outside of Kabul itself the kind of democratic. Uh, structures that would have really aided people when by the time we left we were hated by the by the uh afghan people just a little bit less than they hated the taliban yeah and then right. what does it say about the way we left um i think the way we left i know there are people who love to say oh, well there was no easy way to do it clearly they could have prioritized uh escape of those women particularly those who had aided the United States much more than they did. Right. Yeah. Well, I would have kept the military in and, and had those people covered and you bring, you get the military out last, you get all your people out first as best you can. Obviously that's a sticky situation. Um, but uh, yeah, it was disastrous, but of course you don't know, like you said, we don't get those briefings and you don't know the ins and outs of everything until you're in that seat. And it's, uh, well, it's quite, quite a hot seat to be in. No, there's the president could have gotten, that would convince me that it was okay to uh, not even try to rescue those women. Yeah, it just wasn't even on the radar. Wasn't their priority. Yeah. Um, so what is the best thing about running for president and what is your least favorite thing about running for president? The best thing is when you are talking to the American people. You know, Martin Luther King said, your life begins to end on the day you stop talking about things that matter most. When you were in conversation about with the American people about what's really happening in this country and you see the decency, the nobility. You know, Jefferson said that the only safe repository for power was in the hands of the people. And I would take, there's something so radical and profound about that. I've been in some of the rooms where the highest decisions of life and death and money are discussed. I've been in those rooms with men 
would be men, you know, it's kind of like this sort of patriarchal vibe, no matter what the gender of people. And they're making decisions in a casual way, decisions that are going to affect, affect people's lives. And I'm sitting there watching and thinking, you people are emotionally buffered from the reality of human life outside the confines of your crowd. And then there's running for president. And you are with people whose decency, goodness, humble sincerity about, you know, I think people have an instinctive understanding that America matters. And being involved in that vortex of conversation and knowing if we had the levers of power, what we could do. You know, that's a problem in America today. The people with solutions over here are the people with power over there. The people with solutions don't have the power. The people with the power too often don't really care about the solutions because that's not fact. Real solutions aren't factored into their short-term corporate profit guiding principle, right? As in war profits for defense industry, energy profits for big oil, food profits for big food, people's health profit for big pharma, profit for big insurance. That's how corrupt it is. It's a system of legalized bribery. But when you're running for president and you're actually talking to voters, people hear you on the level you speak from. So when you speak to people from a place of, you know, our children are being fed carcinogens in their food that should be there. And there's PFAS in our water that should not be there. And everyone should have universal health care, just like they do in every other advanced democracy. And people should, we should have tuition-free college and tech school like we had uh, before the 1970s. And people should be able to live on just one job and to, and, and, and to have that conversation with people, a kind of coalition of conscience and goodness. And then when you're running for president, that this is possible. And then you understand why they don't want me on CNN. You understand why they don't want me on MSNBC? Because I'm reminding people we could have this too if we had not been trained to expect so little. We've been trained to limit our political imagination. So it's an honor to be part of the process. The worst part is the brutality of the machine. Invisibilize her, erase her, attack her, smear her, mischaracterize her, send your goons out on the internet to talk about her, um, to throw dust in people's eyes, uh, kick her off the ballot, close the door when she's about to speak somewhere, cancel her events. Uh, it's brutal. It's psychologically and emotionally brutal. But it's also kind of like when you were talking about how the Epstein um, situation is a, it's a sensational embodiment of where America is. My being a woman trying to just speak things that we all know to be true and being so slapped down by the system is a kind of sensational embodiment of what Americans go through every day. The system wants to squash you. The system wants to use its money. And it is about money, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get on these ballots. I mean, the system is to make sure that only people of wealth or access to great wealth can be any, anywhere near the system million dollar donation to super PACs and all of that. So the system is designed to squash you down, make you go away and do as you're told. And I feel by my refusing to do that, hanging on, 
that hopefully I'm helping to penetrate the ethers and to create more and more of a template because this needs to be a revolutionary time. We need a revolution, a political revolution at the ballot box. And uh, I hope that, uh, that on January 23rd, Granite Staters will initiate it because the only way, the status quo today will not disrupt itself. Uh, the only way it will change now is if the people step in. Yeah, and New Hampshire is a, a place where things like that happen. I mean, it's uh, obviously we know that this cycle has been pretty egregious with what the DNC has been doing, um, effectively giving the middle finger to the people of New Hampshire and saying your vote doesn't matter and what you decide to do on election day is ultimately of little consequence to us because, uh, you know, in New Hampshire, if you get, I think it's 15% or higher, you will get awarded delegates. And that's that's been the past in past primaries. And what the DNC is telling candidates like Dean Phillips and yourself uh, is that even though our uh, Biden will not be on the ballot, we're going to write him in. And even if you get you do really well, if you win or get 15 percent or better where you would get delegates in the past, you will not get delegates and they will not be seated at Chicago at the convention. So it, it's just right in our face. The, the, the outright thuggery and it's a, the DNC is basically a mafia. It's like a kind of a money uh, detached neoliberal mafia is, is kind of it's what my view of them is now. Let me tell you what you see in some of these states and how it works. That is the word that comes to mind. That's right. <laughs> it's, uh, so, you know, the people, the people of, uh, of, of New Hampshire have a tremendous opportunity on Tuesday because they can, you know, it's been very impressive the way New Hampshire stood up so far. Yes, we're going to have a primary no matter what you say. Yes, that's what our Constitution says. Even your Republican attorney, attorney general cease and desist to that letter. Yeah. Well, it's time for the voters to step in. I don't understand this codependent relationship that some Democrats have with the DNC, especially in New Hampshire, that slapped you in the face. And you're going to say, oh, OK, we're going to show you how much we love oh, you by in Joe Biden. What is that? That's like being pissed on and you're told, no, that's just rain. Yeah, they're, you know, it's, it's like a husband who just cheats on you and cheats on you and cheats on you. And every four years he comes and says, oh, baby, give me another chance. And then we'll okay. <laughs> it is. It's it's horrible. And uh, this is my seventh New Hampshire primary and I'm, I'm disgusted by it. So there, there there's a lot of sentiment of that, Marianne, here around. So I, I think, you know, between you and Dean Phillips, it could be a really big story next week. About, so. about you know something happening in a referendum against the corruption and against uh, the thuggery and just just the uh, outright subversion of the democratic process. It's just sick. It's sick, and and I think that that is one way to push back on that and, and to to break through it is to go out next week and you have a couple of great options in Marion Williamson and Dean Phillips. We had, uh, I know you're coming to Peterborough tomorrow, right here where I live. I'm hoping to get over there to see you tomorrow. My state rep, Jonah Wheeler, is hosting the event at the uh, library. It's at 6 p.m. tomorrow here in Peterborough, New Hampshire at the public library. So every, everyone who's watching, who's in my neck of the woods, who's in New Hampshire, um, I would just recommend go out to one of Marion's events. She She's here. She comes out. She goes to the diners. She goes to the libraries, house parties. Um, she goes to where the voters are. And that's that's what's refreshing, and that's what's amazing about New Hampshire. I met a couple who drove five hours from Pennsylvania to come see Dean Phillips the other night here at the brewery in my town, um, where we interviewed you a few years ago for, for the first time we had you on the show. And I couldn't believe 
Um, and they mentioned you too. They couldn't believe that we can just go to these events and like Dean Phillips is right here and Marion Williamson is right here and I can just ask them anything I want. It's not scripted. Questions aren't screened. Uh, the candidate's not on a TV screen in, in, uh, in a basement like we saw with Joe Biden last time around. So it is really special. So I want to applaud you, Marion, for, for participating in our process and putting yourself out there and I ran for public office once in 2012 for state rep here in New Hampshire, so that's a lot more. That's a lot smaller than running for president, but it, it is very same animal, though. It's the same animal. Well, that's it, it, and it can be very psychologically damaging. Time and time again, people saying things about you, mischaracterizing who you are, and you can't possibly respond to every attack and every smear and every bit of slander. So, um, it takes someone who has moral courage and who is not afraid to put themselves out there. So, you know, I really, I really respect you for doing that, Marianne, and putting yourself out there. I think it's awesome. Well, thank you. I will be in Manchester this afternoon at one o'clock at the uh, community college. And then I will be at the uh, Old South Church in Portsmouth tonight. I think it's seven. And people can go to see where I'll be in the next few days as we head up to Tuesday uh, at marian2024.com on the events page. And like you said, people can come out and we'll have whatever conversation people want to have. And uh, I do a lot of saying the quiet part out loud. I think a lot of people are ready for that. I, I read an article about myself years ago that I think applies to this part of my life and career as well as it did then, as much as it did then. Somebody wrote, uh, Marianne Williamson isn't saying what everybody else isn't saying. She's just saying it when the microphone is on. And that's what I think my campaign stands for. Just what actually we're all saying, but that somehow we feel like we're alone and the system is having a completely different conversation. And it makes you think, well, I'm crazy. But now people realize, no, the system is crazy. And yeah. we people, this is supposed to be of the people, by the people, for the people, not of the corporations, by the corporations, of the corporations, or by the DNC, of the DNC, by the DNC. And you're right. It's the people of New Hampshire, the voters of New Hampshire have the power. It's extraordinary. You have the power next Tuesday to say, okay, enough of that. We're going to start turning this around and we're going to start turning it around now. That would be amazing. It would be yeah. amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just I just think it's pathetic. An incumbent president has to do a write-in campaign in one state that he purports to represent as commander in chief yeah. of the United States. I, I think it's just Oh, and Florida won't get to vote at all. Yeah, that that was just outright. They just kicked you and Chenk and Dean right off, right? It's not just Florida, it's Tennessee, it's North Carolina, it's Wisconsin. No. It's yeah, so undemocratic, it's... you can't even believe it. <laughs> the undemocratic party. Um well, any, if anyone has any questions they want to put in the chat, we could get to, we have a few more minutes, so we could get to a couple of those. But one thing I didn't uh, mention or ask you about, Marion, was right now, today, what your thoughts are on how to help the Israel-Palestine issue. I know it's a pretty loaded question, but what is your posture in that conflict? And what do you think would be the best path that a president could do to bring some kind of settlement over there and some kind of peace? To say to Bibi Netanyahu no more, which is what we should have said a long time ago. And, and some presidents have tried, Clinton tried. Uh, that 3.8 billion that we, I couldn't, that was a memorandum of understanding until 2028. So as president, what I kept saying, I couldn't have unilaterally stopped that, but I could have definitely said that it could only be used 
for purposes which did not transgress our moral values. Obviously, the illegal occupation on the West Bank, the blockade, the siege in Gaza, the, the settlements, these are illegal uh, uh, projects that no American money should have been given towards. And now the president is saying he wants to see Netanyahu ramp it down. Can you imagine saying to what is essentially mass murder, ramp it down? No, stop it. Stop it now. There needs to be a ceasefire. It's not just ceasefire. It's ceasefire now. Release of those hostages and an immediate plan of architecture for a two-state solution. Now, Netanyahu, whose policies have so mightily contributed to this horror, over the last 15 years. He's saying, oh, no two-state solution. So President Biden is saying, no, we need a two-state solution. Biden is saying, oh, Netanyahu will get there. What, at what point, That's it, it makes no sense to me. I would be much tougher on Netanyahu. And, and let me say this, and for whatever it's worth, I, I am Jewish. There, there is no way that we should on any level minimize the horror of October 7th. And I appreciated the president's moral clarity, but we need the same moral clarity regarding this bombardment, this indiscriminate bombardment of civilians in Gaza. And that's where the United States should be. All men are created equal, doesn't just mean Americans. And we should have equal and equally robust commitment to the safety, to the security, and at this point to the sovereignty of both peoples. And that is where I would be as a president. But uh, I don't know what we're waiting for while he chooses to ramp it down. Although we mm -hmm. do know what we're waiting for and yeah. it's not okay. And if I were president, I would simply say this stops now. Now you still got Congress to deal with, but that would certainly be my position. Well, absolutely. And, and, and going back to the Epstein thing, I can't help but connect uh, the blackmail and that and that kind of operation and leverage that something like that would have over decision makers in Washington to just do this or just keep appropriating billions and billions of dollars to that machine, to the far right Likud over in Israel to continue to execute these policies of basically erasing uh, the Palestinian people. So if we can get someone in there who's not compromised and, and not bullied by APAC or not caught up in the uh, Epstein thing, because my take on Epstein is that's that's Mossad, that's totally Israeli intelligence. Oh. Um, you know, I, I don't really. There's no evidence of that. And as a Jew, I have a problem with, well, so-and-so's a Jew, so it must be Mossad. I mean, I, I'm experiencing a lot of that myself. I mean- uh, Well, I'm not, I'm not coming at it from that no, angle. I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about Robert, Ma Robert Maxwell, Glenn Maxwell's father had ties yes, with intelligence and Glenn, Glenn took that over and brought Epstein came together and it, it, a lot of it's there, but but regardless, we do need someone who is not entangled in any of that, whether it's APAC, that's whether it's... That's, that's very true. That, any that's of, very true. I, yeah. I think that in terms of this election on Tuesday, I'm very sad to see those who feel that the best way they can make a statement about, uh, about uh, Israel and Gaza is to write in ceasefire now. Um, if you really want to help the people of Gaza, if we're not just talking performative statement, but actual helping the people of Gaza, the best thing someone can do is vote for a candidate who not only calls for a ceasefire now, but has been from the very beginning, even before it started. You know, I was saying in videos, an invasion must not occur. Absolutely. Well, hang out with me for a sec after we finish here, Marion. But uh, everybody, that's Marion Williamson. 
Uh, she's put herself out there for the second campaign cycle in a row in a run for president for the Democratic nomination. Um, go to Marianne2024.com to check out what she's all about, where she stands on the issues, uh, what she's passionate about, and how this message is resonating with people all across uh, America here in New Hampshire. Marion, I thank you so much for your time, and I, I wish you all the best and all the luck on Tuesday, and we'll all be watching very closely. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Always nice seeing you. Yeah. Thank you, Marianne. And folks, thanks for tuning in to Jackman Radio. Um, you can follow us on Spotify, on Twitter at Jackman Radio, Instagram at Jackman Radio. And if you want to support this channel in independent media, independent media is important, right, Marianne? Independent media is more than important. It's like the only hope democracy has. Yep. You can uh, become a patron, patreon.com slash Jackman Radio. So I thank you all again for tuning in and we'll see you next time.